Welcome back to Alpi Parsha Podcast, your Torah portion podcast. Each month, we'll do a bird's eye view of all the weekly Torah portions. Then we'll zoom in on a passage or theme that catches our eye, and we'll connect it back to Judaism and our own lives. This month, we'll be covering Vayishlach, Vayishev, Miketz, Vayishgat, Vayigash, and Vayichi. And Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Paul. I feel like each time we're doing more Parshas. First one we did three, second we did four, now five. Uh, so I'm looking forward to jumping into all this with you. But other than that, I'm doing okay. Yeah, you know, it's not intentional to increase. It's like trying to align the months with, I guess, a satisfying resolution to things. So mm. I think probably yes. some of these went into December. Yeah. No, January. Oh, January. Um, but I wanted to uh, just have them all kind of end together so that way it just feels cohesive to people. And believe it or not, as we'll find out, these passages actually are a fairly cohesive mm-hmm. repertoire mm. of um, the story of Jacob, uh, which is also the name of a novel I once wrote, the story of Rachel and Jake, oh. um, which we could get into another session. Maybe but we'll, that could be on our uh, bonus on our What's Patreon. It a Patreon. That's <laughs> I do want to share a text message with uh, with our listeners that I sent you. Like, I think you probably know which one. I think it'd be funny for them to hear. Which one? Let's pull it up. Yeah, I'm going to pull it up for you. Um, so I need to give a little bit of context as to what preceded the text message that I read to Aaron. So uh, what had happened was, uh, the background was that James and I, my husband, had uncharacteristically had a few drinks. So that was made us a little bit hungover the next day. That's one thing. The second thing was the war in Israel was also giving us a lot of stress. So I think we were just a little heightened. And then we also had seen a scary movie that weekend uh, about a haunted house. And then also the lights started going on and off in our cottage while we we're watching the movie. So suffice to say, we were very much believing in ghosts that weekend. Um, so this is a text I sent to Aaron without any irony. Hey, Aaron, quick demon question. <laughs> my great, great uncle's second wife's niece. This is true. My great, great uncle's second wife's niece died and they're going to give us her furniture. Unfortunately, James had a dream of a box that dragged him to hell connected to the furniture that we're meant to receive. Do you think this is a divot premonition? And would you take the furniture in this case? Because mm. for those of you who don't know, sometimes Dibiks, which I guess are Ashkenazi demons, yep. are related to a box as from the movie. Uh, there's an exorcism movie. Mm. Uh, I think it's called Exorcism. Uh, in the last 10 years, about a Dibik box. Mm. So that was scary. And then mm. after Aaron told us it was okay, I called my mother-in-law. And she gave us more advice that escalated the situation. That was, she, that was it okay or not okay? <laughs> not okay. No, not okay. So she said that when you have cursed furniture, I didn't know this. <laughs> when you have cursed furniture, modifying it heightens the curse. And the chairs needed to be reupholstered that we we're going to inherit. Uh-huh. So she thought it was a bigger concern than we had even originally thought. <laughs> because bringing in cursed furniture that... So then I was like, well, maybe, you know, if Aaron is too open-minded, maybe we need to talk to a Chabad rabbi. Like, they'll, they'll, they'll tell us that it's cursed. <laughs> they'll, really, they'll tell you how it really is. But I was basing my information based on the play that we saw, the Dybbuk, 
which is my only source of Dybbuk information. And the way that the curse works in the Dybbuk is the, and I think maybe you missed the second half, where this is all revealed. And we understand that there's a Dybbuk because this girl's father made an agreement with his close friend that their daughter and son should get married. Mm -hmm. And if they don't agree to this, that there should be a curse or something like that. So there was like a specific thing that was happening that was cursed. It's not the objects themselves or the people themselves. It's like the decisions that people are making. That's good to know. Like if I guess if I saw the second half of the play, I should say me and Aaron came to the play late. So we actually couldn't see the play physically. We had to like watch from the side of the stairwell. So it was kind of a funny situation. Yeah. The movie I'm referencing is The Possession in 2012, produced by Sam Raimi, mm. where a Dybbuk box curses a family. Mm. Um, but then the day after that, James and I had gotten enough sleep and we're no longer hungover. And we thought, you know, maybe we're not so concerned. Well, we're still a little concerned about her curse. Mm. So we're not going to take the pottery from her house, which was the key mm. component that was cursed in his dream. Uh-huh. But we will take everything else and take a chance with the whole modifying cursed items and stories that yeah. my mother-in-law had warned me about mm. it's probably just about the pottery anyway it's probably i think so i think Chances the pottery are. is um so unfortunately there's not a lot to do with demons and curses in this these parshiots but maybe but if there is we'll find it <laughs> if there is we'll find it um there are blessings but not curses i don't think mm. um maybe more just spites so we're going to do a little bit of our, what's it called? The, the hotel, not the hotel, the elevator, elevator. the elevator summary. Um, and then kind of connect. Yeah, actually, back. there's a great, not exactly demon, but there's a demon demonic moment, which we'll get to. Let's get to it. You'll have to point it out to me because mm-hmm. I don't see it in my notes. It's a, it's a Midrash. So it's, it's not, not on the surface level of the text. Well, you have to tell me the Midrash after the summary because mm-hmm. I, I do need to know. We'll I kind of it. need some closure on this demon situation. Great. We'll do it. So here is my elevator summary. As always, brought to us by Chabad.org, who we have, I did not decide if you can turn to an exorcism situation, but um, according to the movie The Possession, I think it alluded that they do. So my elevator summary is that uh, in these parshiot, Jacob returns after a long stay in Haran, uh, and he learns that Esau is on a warpath against him. He runs into an angel uh, and wrestles with him, where he gets his name, Israel wrestles with God. Rachel dies while giving birth to her second son, uh, and she's buried near the road near Bethlehem. And Jacob settles in Hebron with his children. And his favorite is Joseph, who has, as you folks might know, a many-colored coat. But it doesn't all go well. His brothers get jealous and throw him in a pit uh, and pretend that he's dead to people that would be interested to know. And Jacob finds... Joseph, sorry. Joseph. Joseph's brothers throw him in a pit. Not Jacob's, mm-hmm. if I said Jacob. Joseph finds himself taken to Egypt. At some point, he is falsely accused of assaulting a woman and thrown in jail. But he's demonstrated to have the ability to prophesize through dream analysis. The first Jungian. Um, that's, I guess, a shout out to my brother if he's listening to this. Um... Joseph is freed when he uses his dream interpretation to help Pharaoh by avoiding a famine through saving some food in his kingdom. That precludes the famine, so to speak. Joseph's family eventually reunites with him, although there is some conflict that I won't get into because this is an elevator pitch. 
Jacob ends up being reunited with his father. No, Joseph is reunited with Jacob and his extended family of Hebrews ends up settling in Europe. And Jacob lives out his final years in Egypt and his 12 sons are assigned as the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob has the final words saying that I'm about to die. God will surely take notice of you and bring you up from this land to the promised land promised on an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which I thought was interesting because he's Jacob. Mm-hmm. And Joseph dies at the age of 110, I believe, uh, and is embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Is that true? I'm going to have to double check no, no, that's true. That's true. Wow, because embalming is a lot of you folks know is verboten in Judaism. Mm-hmm. And this will lead us to Exodus, which we'll also want to talk about because I'm like, Sounds like the Hebrews were doing great in Egypt, and then one day they weren't. But that's for next month. Um, yeah, so this that great summary of a, a, lo- a long extended section where lots of stuff happens. Uh, that takes us to the end of this familial story that we started talking about. The story mm-hmm. of this that we started with Abraham and now is running through Jacob and Joseph. And right, a lot of these tensions, not all that you got into in so much detail, but... Right, Joseph's conflict with his brothers we see happening, continuing to happen. Jacob, like as a kind of trickster, anxious sort of figure, like has an ongoing challenging life. Uh, yeah, lots of adventures in these sections. The one that we start off with, which is the famous... Jacob wrestling with the angel, which is also, I think, kind of a ref- feels like a reflection of his anxiety about meeting his brother mm-hmm. Asav. Uh, the language there is a little bit unclear. So you said that he wrestles with an angel, but actually, the word that it uses in the parsha is says that he wrestles with an ish, an ish which a means a man. But it doesn't really seem like it's a man, right? Because then he gets this blessing about, he says, right, you, you, the angel or the, the man, sorry, now I'm saying angel. <laughs> Got you. Says at the end of wrestling all night, let me go because the dawn is breaking. And then this figure gives this blessing that you've striven with divine beings, Right, and doesn't and refuses to tell Jacob his name. So Jacob would now becomes Israel, uh, which is a name that means somebody who strives with divine beings and human beings. So the Midrash says that, oh, well, what, what was this? This wasn't just a man. This was some sort of demonic force mm. connected to Asaph. So it wasn't Asaph self, but like Asaph's demon or something. Like that, so there there are midrashim that kind of go along that path, and it even it feels a little bit vampire-like that right needs to go when the sun rises, has this oh. quality of it's like connected to a divine being. So this was a vampire that he had wrestled with, and what do you call it? Um, kind of a shadow of Esav. Mm-hmm. Like the tricky thing about using Chabad.org for my summaries is sometimes they throw in. Midrashim in the summary as if they're given and uh, so which confuses me sometimes so sometimes I have to double check um, but it's also sometimes needed or every mm-hmm. translation is interpretation yeah I think that's coming out because the way it's written in Hebrew is not so clear so to just make it more readable to like understand what's going on or like if you just said 
he was wrestling with a man and then like disappeared in the morning like you would say oh that's not a man that's that's clearly something else so so you're saying there's almost no such thing as a peshat meaning plain reading everything is interpretation i think there's no peshat translation or something like that there there is like readings that are on the surface level um but when we translate we already are already getting into interpretation so i don't blame chabad or any English translation would do things like that. Or that I'm looking at the JPS translation that like does things like put in lot, a lot of footnotes to like say we're translating this way, but then actually this part is unclear. And like in many sections, it says meaning of Hebrew uncertain and things so, like that. Because yeah, the Chabad.org uh, translation that I was reading as well, they actually referred to the angel as having the characteristics of Esau. Um, oh, so it made mm-hmm. it, it did also make it sound like it was, I guess, you know, I would, vampire is one good way to put it. I was also thinking maybe like the movie, the grudge mm-hmm. where like, um, although in the grudge, a grudge happens when a person dies in the heat of emotion, but this sounds like more the heat of emotion could have influenced this angel or otherly being to have the characteristics of Esau to kind of have, I guess, a spiritual battle with Jacob, mm-hmm. um, as he is. He did mess up badly with his brother in this circumstance. Like, so the, the grudge lives through this angel in a way. And the grudge yeah. is resolved after maybe, because they do resolve. Yeah, and then they have a, a very nice reconciliation where they hug it out. It seems to go okay. So that must be the demon that we were all dreaming about over the That was the demon, and it really worked out okay, right? They just, <laughs> just wrestled it fun. out a little bit. And even in working through it, mm-hmm. it was a great blessing. That Jacob got a new name and really was able to settle into himself in a, a real and deep, deep way. So I hope that these cursed furniture items can well, you can work through them, reupholster them, and then really settle into yourselves. Well, I was thinking that I was like, if we treat the furniture furniture like cursed, it will become cursed to us, and it'll become oh, cursed furniture. So I shouldn't refer to but it we, as the cursed furniture. If we treat them as normal furniture, then the curse kind of would pass through us. Mm-hmm. So part of me did wonder, kind of like we should just. If we think this furniture is cursed, you know, then perhaps, you know, again, I feel like this is turning into a horror podcast. (laughs) Like at the end, spoiler alert, like at the end of Nightmare on Elm Street 1, where they ignore Freddy Krueger and he disappears, Mm -hmm. although comes back again. Um, If I ignore this curse, although I guess Jacob's working at it. If I I work through the curse, you know, the curse will end, perhaps. Mm. And I'm trying to like also tie us back in i don't know if this is really a connection but it feels like there's something else in the joseph story mm-hmm. where there's like also a tension that like isn't worked through in a certain way i don't know if it's exactly a curse right jacob uh, joseph has these premonitions that these things are going to happen that the stars he has dreams about the stars bowing down to him mm-hmm. and his brothers are like pissed off like joseph has his eye in a certain direction of looking towards what's going to happen but is somehow missing what's going on with his family and brothers and the tensions that he's creating by like placing himself on another level, like receiving all of his father's love, taking this special coat. Mm-hmm. Of course, his brothers are going to be like pissed off at him and not really like him. And then he keeps, I don't know, exactly baiting them, but like showing up and when they're, when they're out and they have a chance to do something to him. I don't know exactly what it is, but it feels like there's un- things that are not worked through. But like over their lifetime, like when 
Joseph rises to prominence in Egypt, like is able to work something out ultimately with his brothers, even though he like seems like plays not so nice tricks on them setting up Benjamin, like placing this cup in his bag. Anyway, these are like some of the details that we didn't get into exactly, but like making everybody very worried about their safety, but then eventually breaks down in tears and says, I'm your brother Joseph, and can I see my father? Uh, and then the last piece, which I also really like at the end of the book of uh, Genesis in Vayechi, that you alluded to, that there's blessings that Jacob gives to all of his children at the end, except for two of the children. I don't know if they're exactly cursed, but two of them aren't blessed. Shimon and Levi don't really get such good words. No? Like, Why I, not? What happened? So we also may have... This is, it's good that we're doing this because we can pick, pick things to like go back to, which we may not have gotten into so much. Mm-hmm. But there's the story of Dina that we didn't touch on so yes, much. Yes, I didn't touch on the rape of Dina. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, get into it. So that's where Shimon and Levi don't really do the right thing. Then what exactly is happening with Dina and Shechem, this person who she meets, isn't clear, but her brothers don't like it. And Shimon and Levi, like, trick the people of Shechem, make them all get circumcised as a condition for letting their leader, Prince, marry their sister Dina. And then while they're all incapacitated from being circumcised, Shimon and Levi come and kill them all. And then Jacob's like, or, yeah, Jacob, their father's like, what? the F did you just do? Like, even if you did something bad, this is not, even if some something bad may have happened to Dina, like this, like, murderous rampage is also not the way to do things. And I think that's reflected in what he says to them at the end. Maybe we could take a look yeah, at that I'm and some of the other because blessings. Levites get to go second for Aliyot, right? Like, uh, when they're being called to the Torah. So if they're so bad in the Tanakh. Yeah, there's also something that's being set up here that there's probably different sources. There's some sort priestly sources that really like the Levites, mm-hmm. right? That the Levites do become the people who are serving in the temple, right? And they get to do that again, kind of again, because of some sort of like zealous, a little bit bloodthirsty thing that they do. Uh, skipping ahead, it's going to be at the... when. Moses leads the people out of Egypt and they're in the desert and they do the golden calf. The Levites basically take on killing people that were involved with the golden calf and distance themselves from that thing. And for being on the right side of the golden calf debacle, they like are lifted up to do this uh, Mishkan tabernacle divine service. Oh, so, you know, after being cursed for killing people, they break the curse by killing people. (laughs) Really kind of a full circle over there, you know. Well, then what do they do in the temple? They kill animals. So it's like a little bit, maybe that's what they're meant to do. It's like somehow working with uh, something that they've got going on. But also literarily, there's something going on here with Jacob's deathbed blessings that he goes through the children, at least starting off with, maybe all the way through in order. And he starts with Reuben, 
And he says, Ruben, you know, I can't really trust you because you uh, slept with my concubine. So you're not really my, even though you're my firstborn, you should be the person who's inheriting from me. I'm sorry, we're, this is in chapter 49. You're as unstable as water. You shall excel no longer, is what my translation says about Reuben. And then next in line is Shimon and Levi. They're the next two sons, but their weapons are tools of lawlessness. And there's that word again, Hamas, that we saw last week. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to be counted amongst you. When you're angry, you slay people. And when you want, you maim oxen. Oh, cursed be your anger. There's the curse. So fierce. The wrath so restless. You know, no good. But who's the next son? Judah. Judah. <laughs> Judah, you're so great, right? So it, there's something about these blessings that are saying like, it's trying to set up Judah for greatness. Because that's right. one of the two remaining tribes, I guess, at the end. Yeah, so probably somebody who was writing this was like invested in the tribe of Judah, probably what's later going to be the southern kingdom uh, of Israel and Judah. And there's, I guess, some tradition that's already established that Judah was not the eldest child, but they're, they're acknowledging that, but still raising up Judah as the central figure here. Because, yeah, we don't hear much about Judah, I feel like, otherwise, though. I feel like Judah is not a huge... Well, he does step up when Joseph is messing with his brothers mm-hmm. and, like, wants to keep... Uh, I think he wants to keep Benjamin. I forget exactly the... He wants to keep Benjamin because of the taking this cup. And Judah says, no, this will kill my father take me and Judas is like long speech pleading with his brother. So he does like stand up in a certain way over there. But I mean like, you know, the two kingdoms of Israel and Judea, I guess. Mm, uh, Those are, you know, Israel. That makes sense. That's a huge thing. But Judah, like, I'm just like, you wouldn't think like, oh, you know, he gets his own kingdom. I'm, I'm not, we're not speaking about historically. There were the mm. southern kingdom of Judah or yeah. Judea and the northern kingdom of Israel. Mm. Uh, what was this like? 100 BCE? Help me out here. Probably before the Romans. No, before, yeah, yeah. Much of, I don't know the year. I should I not have know, guessed it, you know. <laughs> I could just Like the temple it. was destroyed in 586 BC. BC, oh wow, I'm way BC. behind. Was Southern Kingdom of Judah. That was, uh, I think your internet's down. Uh, we'll never know. <laughs> yeah, we'll never know. But it was uh, a long time ago. Um, yeah, and you're pointing out that the character Judah doesn't seem to like be as notable, even though there's this whole kingdom named named after him. Oh, so 930 BCE to 587 BCE. So only around for those. Mm. I guess after that, uh, it's succeeded by someone else, Babylonian Yehud. And then Yehud under Persian Empire. Uh, interesting. So yeah, I it's interesting to see just like like you said, setting up for Judah to be like a positive figure as you know becomes a namesake in the future. Yeah, but there's something interesting like that I think we also see with Jacob, who's right th- that our heroes are not like perfect. Right, Jacob mm-hmm. does a lot of shitty things. Yeah, and Judah is also a little bit in that model. 
right? That the other thing he does is his there's the story of Tamar, mm-hmm. where Judah has some sons, and the first son marries this woman Tamar and dies, and the second son marries Tamar and also dies, and Judah's like, third son, hold up, something's going on here don't marry this woman and then tomorrow's like well i'm gonna waste away it's not my fault like i'm not doing yeah. anything wrong or is she cursed right or is she cursed <laughs> yeah so judah doesn't know but then in the story there's this whole thing and tamar like disguises herself as a prostitute and judah sleeps with her and then judah finds out that tamar is pregnant and judah's like oh well i'm gonna kill you tamar and Tamar's like, oh, well, who gave me these things? And then reveals, like, this pouch and staff. And Judah's like, oh, those are my things. Oh, I slept with you. Oh, whoops, I forgot. <laughs> but then through that union is this whole line of Judah that this, right? It's, like, also a f- strange story that, like, sets up this line that is, again, our line that will this lead line. the line of David. Or this lion. Uh, or this lion of Judah. <laughs> Uh, this is ex- and this is the language. Judah is a lion's whelp. Gur Aryeh Yehuda. Well, I mean, they didn't speak English, obviously, in ancient Israel, so they couldn't make that pun. They missed the pun, but <laughs> it, it is a good pun. And then, uh, I guess going down the list I have here, because I'm also looking at the Chumash at the same time, Zebulon, who is, I guess, another one that we don't hear a lot about. Mm-hmm. Any, any comments on Zebulon from you as a rabbi? I think that it's Zvulun or Zebulon and Issachar have some, like, are imagined as being connected tribes. Mm-hmm. Right here, Zvulun is connected with the seashore. And I think they were thought of being as, like, traders and merchants. And Issachar were, like, the more studious uh, yeshiva dwellers. And they supported each other. I don't think there's this... Again, it's not here in the text. This is like some thing that the rabbis take a little bit further, but that's the connection that I have in my head. In my head, that it's and that the rab and the rabbis are saying that's a good setup, right? People that are like studying mm-hmm. a lot need to be supported by people that are working a lot, and they support each other. And the people that are studying pray for the success of the people who are working, and that improves improves their success. And so, it's all, are you commenting kind of on? Israeli politics. And that's definitely what they point to, yeah. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. So I guess for people who are not familiar with Israeli politics, that there are groups of people who study and I guess receive a small stipend to exist, Mm -hmm. but then other people who work, their taxes pay for that stipend. And Mm -hmm. the people who study tend to have a higher birth rate. So this is now becoming a demographic question. I should use the word question. A demographic Mm -hmm. concern um, for people. Um, although I, I am told by my friends who live in Israel that these two groups of people are, seem to be getting along temporarily because of a shared, you know. Yeah, difficult times. Sometimes bring people together. And next we have Dan, I believe. Yeah. A serpent by the road. Hmm. What does that right say there. there, Dan? I guess he's not as... Well, this also just brings to mind to me that the 12 tribes are sometimes connected to the 12 astrological signs. Oh, it's so there's also, right? So the the serpent, it's, uh, which is the one that's the scales? Ooh, I forget, I but see. they're, no. no. 
Uh, Libra. Libra. Yeah, so Dun is associated with Libra. There's some maybe connection with the serpent on the scales. I don't exactly have this fully clear in my mind. but What Aaron's referencing to is that for some reason astrology seems to come up in Judaism and sometimes you even see astrological signs in some synagogues as you can in Toronto at the Kiver synagogue, mm-hmm. which is interesting because you would think people associate... I guess astrology with, you know, things that you would think would be avodah zarah, meaning like foreign worship, like d- mm. divination. Um, but somehow it seems to not be such an issue, I guess, in historical Judaism astrology. Yeah, there's a long history of astrology in Judaism. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting and just kind of connecting back to that thing you wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there are these layered associations. There are these layered associations with the 12 months uh, and the 12 tribes and the 12 astrological signs so yeah there's these interesting layers of interpretation around the number 12 which is in a meaningful number in judaism yeah like 12 eggs (laughs) (laughs) people get their eggs Mm. in 12 why are they uh 12 that's it's from this it's from this from the 12 tribes when i was a kid people told me that we can't buy the dozen because humans originally had six fingers. <laughs> and I think I held that belief for like 10 okay. years. Like, oh yeah, like when we there's 10, but there's also 12. It doesn't because we still have six fingers on each hand. Mm. So that's why we do that. But you know what? I don't think that's the case. It would be a good reason if, yeah. only, if only it made sense. Um, and as I'm looking at these other ones, right? Like I don't... God, Asher, God, Naftali. Asher, Naftali. You know, I don't have so much. I'm interested in Asher, whose symbol is the tree, often. And I'm connected with Asherah, who's the goddess. also the goddess, whose symbol is a tree. And I'm curious what the connection is there. I guess you're alluding to biblical criticism, wherein we can find connections between proto-Semitic religions mm-hmm. that are polytheistic and Judaism, and Asherah being a proto-Semitic god um is that what well you're i think to? both proto-semitic and right there is reference to asherah all through the torah right and but as a bad thing, yeah no? yeah as a bad thing yeah okay maybe proto-semitic doesn't mean limited to as a burgeoning asherah you're a burgeoning en- asherah enthusiast i was gonna say enthusiast <laughs> okay i was like didn't you get the last word wow uh if you look behind you, Paul, I have these goddess uh, images up on my wall here. Uh, and I'm, yeah, curious about what is the role of, like, feminine deity. And I think they're always, right, the, the Torah, you're right, does treat it like a bad thing and tries to push it aside. But I think I'm reading into that, that there was an underlying, like, thrust of it there. Yeah, yeah. And we like see it also in the later like prophetic books where the good kings are like getting rid of Asherah mm-hmm. and Baal and all these things from the temple, but then the next kings are just putting putting it back. And I forget exactly what it is. I read it somewhere, but for like more than half of the time that the temple stood, there was Asherah. According to the, the Tanakh, there was Asherah in the temple. So also. That's really interesting. That's very, I guess. So you want to 
explore Asherah in your own religious practice. Yeah, or I want to explore the divine feminine, which okay. like I think sometimes takes the form of Asherah. I feel like more commonly we use like the word Shekhinah, which is... Shekhinah, yeah. Although I feel like that's aspect. kind of anachronistic, right? It's just a feminine noun, but I think we connect it to the feminine. Yeah, so the, the rabbis in the Talmud talk about Shekhinah as like the, yeah, presence of the divine, which they're probably mm-hmm. envisioning as male, even though they're using a female word for it. But the Kabbalists take it on in a different way afterwards. And they say, oh yeah, Shekhinah, that refers to like this, one of the ten spherots. And they like, the Kabbalists do all sorts of funny things. They like definitely refer to it as the divine feminine. Oh, interesting. But also and then a little bit of a transgender sort of way. And sometimes Shekhinah's masculine, sometimes feminine and do all these things. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, I just, uh, I didn't know that, but I, I thought Asher meant like pleasant. Is that what the etymology mm. is? Something like that? Yeah, like connected to Ashrei. Yeah, Ashrei Yitre Vitecha. Oh, yeah, that's fella. Is that right? Yeah, something to that effect. Right, like, we often translate as like happy or it's more like content or those who sit in your house, but something about a positive feeling. Yeah. So from Asher, we go down to Naftali. Jenny's grandfather was named Naftali. So that's what I. That's my, these are, these are just my sisters. <laughs> and I think <laughs> your old roommate, <laughs> I think your old roommate's Hebrew name is Naftali. That's true. Yeah. Our friend Naftali now goes by the name Naftali. And it's also in my family, and I think this is also the case for this Naftali, there's a connection. People are called like Naftali Hertz. And what is Hertz? Hertz is a word for uh, deer or hinds. And there is some connect, like the, animal that's connected with Natali is this ayal which we have here. Natali is a hind let loose which yields lovely tons. There's some connection there. The heart. The heart, the lev. Well the heart like the deer. Is the heart. heart I think heart is a deer. I this this is news to me. I, yeah, don't know. I think it's a fancy word. Uh, and then just in Yiddish is Hertz. Hertz. Uh, and then Joseph, who is also a important figure gets a longer blessing piece and gets the image of a donkey. Does Joseph pass. get a tribe, though? I feel like I don't remember him getting a tribe. Uh, Joseph gets a double tribe. A double tribe. Who are his tribes? Uh, Ephraim and Manasseh are Joseph's two sons. Oh, okay, so he gets a double get, tribe. Get a special blessing uh, from Jacob. And there's also, right, and that continues this tension, right, that Joseph brings his two children to Jacob, like before, again, before he's going to die, to like give them blessings. And then Joseph sets them up in a certain way that the Menashe should get the first blessing, the elder son, from, I think, the right hand, which is the stronger hand or whatever that bias is. But then Jacob crosses his hands and gives the bigger blessing to Ephraim, the younger son. <laughs> just because the old switcheroo. Old switcheroo, which is this happening the all the way through. This was the first switcheroo uh, in history. You know, <laughs> I think that's the significance here. 
uh, yeah, so it, it ends up that both Ephraim and Menashe get land, and the Levites that we mentioned before, because they're working in this sacred realm, they don't inherit land mm -hmm. the way the other tribes do, so they're kind of like taken out of the counting. Which makes sense, because if he has 12 sons, but one son gets two tribes, you have to subtract one. a son. So it's the and the subtraction was there. the Levites. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And then we have, I guess, Benjamin is the last one. And then one Benjamin, here. the last, last beloved one. The ravenous wolf. The image of the wolf is connected with Benjamin. Uh, and of course, who's missing? Dina. We already, mentioned that they have, we already mentioned Dina. There's a daughter. How come she doesn't get any blessings? Where is she? Where is she, really? We don't know. Can I just leave her behind? There is that famous book, which I'm sure, if you're listening to this, you definitely read it. Uh, the Red Tent by Anita Diamond, who also wrote a few other the books. The New Jewish Wedding. The New Jewish Wedding. That's the one that I recommend to people. Um, she gives Dina much more of a story. Because, yeah, it does seem like... Well, I mean, you know and I know Aaron that probably also society was organized in what some people would call maybe sexist frameworks. <laughs> <laughs> Saying bold things I am, you know. Yeah, but so that's, that's I think, is the case. That there was some patriarchal framework of writers and people at this time who wrote this down. That doesn't mean that there weren't women who were having full, rich experiences. They're just not recorded. So mm -hmm. what do we do about that? Well, we like can try to find little strands. We can like write Midrashim like Anita Diamond did. Mm -hmm. And we can be part, I think, of that process of like trying to reimagine what that was and and accept that and bring that into our tradition and understanding and we can write songs about them and songs about them because <laughs> every year me and aaron write a song about a woman from the tanakh so uh we've done rachel leia hulda hulda uh hannah hannah uh, -huh. uh who's going to be next who is going to be next? You know, that's that's all the women we in the got, Tanakh. we got to start thinking about it. Maybe Dina. Maybe Dina. Uh, you know, she has a book about her, though. So I feel like she's got she's, her time. Okay. I'm thinking maybe more Sarah. Um, no. But we'll find no. out in February. Okay, we'll let you know in February. But before we get to February, we can maybe say goodbye and thank you to the book of Genesis. Yes, this has been... You know, it, it has been really meaningful to kind of look at it from... A bird's eye view like you were describing the themes of going from creation to family and i'm not the biblical scholar you are but it sounds like in the next book we're going to have the people the hebrews mm -hmm. um it just feels like these different kind of um transformations are happening the world a family a people yeah. um and you know we talked today a little bit about because of the curse this morning we talked a little bit about the good things and bad things that come from a family and what you were alluding to earlier as well is that sometimes the curses in a family are maladaptive habits we have mm. like you're talking about joseph having negative approaches to how he interacts with his brothers and his brothers obviously doing terrible things to him um but i guess that also means that all curses can be broken mm. and made into blessings hopefully because these are just human-made things uh, oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Mm -hmm. like we all have these things. I think that is part of the teaching of these ancestors, of Joseph and Jacob, right? That our great ancestors had maladaptive traits mm -hmm. and could work through them. And I think it's a challenge for us 
who also probably have many maladaptive traits mm -hmm. to keep working through them. Because one thing we're hearing a lot this month, I guess, for a lot of people is also the idea of intergenerational trauma coming yeah, up. Yeah. Uh, and obviously not to minimize that. We're not saying, and you can get over it. Because we know a lot of it is epigenetic. Um, epigenetic meaning like the stresses of your ancestors are imprinted onto your DNA. Um, but just that there's possibility, I guess, for change and growth. And I have, um, I know Esther Perel, she didn't invent this idea, but Esther Perel, the famous couples therapist, she talked about how her family of Holocaust survivors, some of them experienced post-traumatic stress and some experienced post-traumatic growth as well. Mm. Um, just that all of us, no matter what story we come from, we can find ways to slowly pick apart our curses and maybe isn't that kind of the journey of our life the journey of healing indeed and i also just want to if you want to get into this a little bit more and do some of this healing work around intergenerational trauma i'm listening to an audiobook about this topic called wounds into wisdom by rabbi tears of firestone mm. and so far it's really great and it comes highly recommended so, by you uh, by the parts i read by me yeah yeah Beautiful. Well, I think that's a really good way to kind of, for now, leave the book of Bereshit of Genesis uh, and move into the book of Shemot, Exodus, uh, next month. So looking uh, forward to that too. Looking forward to that like uh, like a lot. So as always, this has been uh, Paul Saleka. And this is Aaron Rotenberg. Take care, friends. Take care. Mm -hmm.